Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Pandora, I've decided we're going to start with a kind of blankety-blank activity. So I'm going to read you my favourite newspaper headline from the last week and you have to guess what the blank is. I'm going to be horridious at this game, dogs. I haven't been very connected with the news for a little bit. Um, so prepare for some inventive guesses. Male baboons benefit from what rain wearing socks (laughs) no both good guesses male baboons live longer if they have more female friends oh don't we all i know it's really interesting so it was an article in the new york times and there's been all this data that's been collected about baboons and what they've discovered is it's basically about grooming so the more inter-grooming that baboons do where they take turns to groom each other broadly the longer they live and women and women do grooming with each other and men and women do grooming with each other but there's not much male to male baboon grooming maybe you're a baboon dolly because you're a big believer in female friendship uh maybe (laughs) the dolly baboon Maybe I should just change the next edition of the book jacket for everything I know about love and it just be a picture of a male baboon. Or a female baboon. One of the leaders on the, I'm going to call it investigation, um, said, Dr Campos said, we don't really understand the actual mechanisms that turn friendships into lifespan. Isn't that interesting? So we know, I wonder if it's the same with humans, we know that love and security and spending time with each other and, you know, intimate relationships mean we live longer, but we don't know why. I have absolutely no doubt that that would be something that makes you live longer because you read a lot about people dying from loneliness, don't you? Or heartbreak when they lose their partner and therefore their company. And that's been a huge concern during the pandemic for older people living on their own. But I wonder specifically why. There must be a reason. Is it that is it um, a sense of purpose? Is it a sense... Is it survivalistic? I don't know, obviously. I'm just very interested why. I suppose from an evolutionary point of view, the one that peeled off from the pack would probably not live as long, would it? It must be yeah. purpose and perhaps it's... Perhaps socialising has a biological effect perhaps communication keeps some juices going they've actually just said they're circling around exactly the same things you're circling around they said friendships might help the animals avoid conflicts so if you've got someone on your side in the animal world that obviously means that you've got an ally when danger 
arrives. But I suppose in the human world, even though it's not physical attacks you're talking about most of the time, I suppose the sense of you'll live longer if you have someone there to defend and protect you in times of stress. And they've also said studies in other primates have found that social relationships reduce physiological signs of stress. So exactly what you said, that stress manifests in the body and the way you reduce stress is by having good friendships. So there we go. We've got a lot to learn about human behaviour from the baboons. I think I'm the first person to ever say that. You definitely are. No one's ever drawn the link between the two mammals. I'm enjoying this game of blankety blank, though. I know. Maybe I'll um, look into this more. (laughs) There might even be a theory that we evolved from them. Write in with your thoughts. Another blankety blank game for you, Panda. A shop owner selling what has revealed they saw a massive surge in sales over lockdown. This is very obvious. Fluffy blankets, vibrators. Nearer that. Nearer vibrator. Butt plugs. No, I actually want you to keep guessing. (laughs) No. Chocolate body paint. No, that answers sex dolls. Oh, gosh. When appearing on an instalment of This Morning last week alongside a male doll, Jessie, Jade Stanley spoke about her business and how it had soared throughout the coronavirus pandemic. We saw surges, Jade said. So every time a restriction would come into place, (laughs) I saw massive surges. Loneliness has always been a massive issue and these dolls serve more than just their primary purpose. They're very much companion dolls. So when people come to visit my website, they're looking for more than just a sex toy. This is a companion. This is someone to sit in your home and bring a lot of happiness into people's lives. Well, I think that's very interesting in light of your previous comment on Mm, the effects, the physiological effects of being alone. So who are we to judge how people... I think it's great. Sociologically get ahead um i just don't like to think about the cleaning aspect of it but then there's a lot of things that it's not nice to think about the cleaning of really isn't it exactly don't dwell on it bottom cleanings never i said don't dwell on it panda okay yeah sorry (laughs) i have i have a poll for you hit me a survey of 2,000 people by prospectus global has revealed that 40 percent of under 30s do not know what getting sozzled means Dolly, do you know what getting sozzled means? Yeah, getting drunk. I'll read you the other ones. 37% of people do not know what a cad is. A man who is dishonest Mm. or treats other Mm. people badly. 37% of people don't know what a bonk is. These are just like very PG Woodhouse, I think. I don't think this is about people not fucking and drinking. I think this is just about really old-fashioned language. I don't think bonk's that old-fashioned. Wally, 36% of people don't know what a wally is. Uh, when's the last time you really heard that word being used in a non-ironic way? Every single day. 17% of people <laughs> don't know what a disco is. Don't explain that one away to me, Dolly. No, no, that's sad. Disco is on the shortlist for my daughter's names, actually, for a while. I've taken it off now. Heavens above. of people don't know what randy is, 20% kerfuffle, 21% brill, 22% swat, 23% lush and tosh, 25% yonks, 26% henceforth, 
27% didn't know what a bounder was or what balderdash meant or what a trollop is. Jilly Cooper has stepped forward and said that she is worried that plonk will also soon be forgotten. Oh yeah, you don't hear that. The 83-year-old said the words bonk and plonk describe two of the loveliest activities in the world. Let's make sure we carry on using them both. And she added that she would write a plonk buster called sozzled to ensure the word (laughs) stays in common usage. A couple of words from the 60s that I think are very often misunderstood now, but I really enjoy. I remember my mum once using them and I was really shocked until she explained what they actually meant. Uh, Slut and slatten. Mm, Yeah, you very rarely hear slut used in the in the in the original form in which it was intended yeah it's just untidy doesn't it yeah Yeah. so i remember she once said called me a slut (laughs) (laughs) um and then she explained to me and i think it's pretty much the same as slatten anyway i love all these ridiculous old words unsurprisingly but i did enjoy this survey yes and i think we should all now choose our favorite one and we should go out and be a missionary for it Okay, well, my favourite from this list, I think, is probably... I think yours should be Boogie, 28%. Okay, I'll go and spread the word of Boogie. What are you going to spread the word of? Mine's going to be Nincompoop at 28% (laughs) as well. That is a tough one to push. (laughs) But I wish you well. Thank you very much. I have two heroes from social media this week, Panda. The first is Mick Fleetwood. Have you seen this? No. Okay, so here's the short version. Mick Fleetwood, a man in his early 70s of Fleetwood Mac, on a moving object, I think it's a skateboard, down a country lane, drinking from an enormous carton of cranberry juice, while his own hit Dreams from the 1977 album Rumours plays, and he lip syncs to the song in between swigs now i thought that's where the story ended i was willing to be perfectly honest to retire completely from online life after seeing this because it was so incongruous so bizarre and yet so normal and expected and it was so deliciously boomer that i thought the internet cannot get better than this tiktok video the fact it was on tiktok was just delish i was just like this is the best it gets. Sadly, I've found out that this is not Mick Fleetwood being strange. This is him being a satirist. Because last month, a clip went viral on TikTok of a man called Nathan Apodaca who skateboarded along to the song, mouthing the lyrics and drinking cranberry juice. So there's a hidden layer to it. Is there a UTI involved in this? I didn't know anyone drank cranberry juice voluntarily. I know, I don't think I've ever seen a man chugging down litres and litres of cranberry juice. That would always be the best way at school to subtly hint to everyone that you were sexually active would be to swig from a carton of cranberry juice. Oh, makes you so thirsty. Oh, no. Who's your other hero? My other hero is John Ronson. I was on Instagram the other day and I just happened to see John Ronson had put up a photo of his bird table and it said... My bird table has become like those old photos of Carnaby Street in the 1970s where groups of old codgers would stare at the punk from afar and it's just a picture of some birds that are brightly coloured with sort of mad feathers. And underneath I saw Paula Dot Ronson, 
Love your post about the bird table. You really are clever and funny. Two kisses, Mum. John Ronson replied, Thank you, Mum. <laughs> just made me so happy like this towering intellectual. It's just like us. They still have mums that comment embarrassing things. Maybe he asked her. Maybe he said, Mum, I'm worried about how this post will perform. <laughs> Maybe. As the master of public shame, I would hate to be shamed by my own post. So could you comment? <laughs> What I love is when someone really famous puts something up and their spouse will be like, oh, so that's what you've been doing. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Or don't be so ridiculous. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of heroes, have you read the Life in a Day interview with Tom Hollander that has been lighting up people's lives this week? Yes, I loved it. It provided a much-needed moment of levity and a reminder that even the successful and famous are perhaps not living their most exciting fruitful lives right now it's a very funny look at a life which is perhaps less busy than as a very in-demand actor Tom Hollander's life often is so it starts I wake up generally at 3 or 4 a.m not because I'm like Margaret Thatcher but because I need to pee I pee in the darkness using my phone screen to illuminate the target then often take half a sleeping pill an antihistamine turn on the world service very quietly and go back to sleep again. Sometime between six and eight, I wake up again, turn up the Today programme gently. If my girlfriend's there, we hold each other in different positions. If she isn't, I wrap my arms around a pillow and continue listening to the bad news. Dolly, which were your favourite bits about a very honest, meandering day in the life of a currently not working actor? I loved it. I loved the bit where he talked about wanking, where he talked about ringing his agent and having no work, <laughs> where he talked about making vast quantities of baked porridge with olive oil and salt and therefore sort of cancelling out anything that might have been healthy about it to begin with. I liked the bit where he said he ends his day holding his girlfriend in different shapes or holding onto a pillow. It's just like it was underpinned by this resigned sort of cheerful in, in quite a dull, unexpected way, but just resigned existential malaise. I just like, it completely captured the mood of the nation, I think. It was so brilliant. I loved it. He should write. I would love to read, like, a whole book from Tom Hollander if that's the quality of his writing. It was so funny. Yes, I think it was completely delightful, and I'm not surprised at all that it has spawned numerous headlines such as Tom Hollander's interview about solo sex goes viral, which I'm sure is exactly what his agent was hoping for when he or she set up that interview. Last week, the model Chrissy Teigen and singer John Legend had their baby, Jack, who very sadly died during childbirth. And Chrissy shared a black and white picture of herself in hospital in floods of tears after finding out that her baby had passed away. She wrote on Instagram under a carousel of black and white images. We are shocked and in the kind of deep pain you only hear about, the kind of pain we've never felt before. We were never able to stop the bleeding and give our baby the fluids he needed, despite bags and bags of blood transfusions. It just wasn't enough. And she goes on to thank people for their wishes and prayers. And she writes a message to their son, Jack, saying that they will always love him. 
Inevitably, some people have questioned whether or not it is appropriate to share this kind of personal pain on social media. In fact, I debated whether to bring it up today in case it invites further analysis. But as it's already been so widely covered, I wanted to, if only to emphasise that telling women how they should or shouldn't share their vulnerability in public is just yet another way of reinforcing the boundaries of acceptability for womanhood. Yeah, I agree. I couldn't believe there was any response to that other than deep compassion and pain for that couple and and gratitude to that woman for sharing something so unbelievably traumatic for a greater sense of a shared problem. And this is increasingly what I'm realising about fertility and babies and stillbirth and miscarriage is it is a shared problem and it has been a shared problem for all of eternity we just haven't known it's a shared problem because women have felt like they're not allowed to talk about it so anyone who has an issue with that it is entirely their issue and nothing to do with the conduct of the women who courageous enough to share their experiences something i'm finding increasingly exasperating about the way we talk about sharing on the internet is this kind of unwillingness to accept or be comfortable with the fact that just because you wouldn't share something means that it's wrong for someone else to do so. I was about to say exactly the same thing. And this is a woman who has had a public life for a long time. Like, this is not something she's thoughtless about. If people share this stuff and it's really, really personal and the darkest moments of their life, they are not doing it thoughtlessly. And if the picture makes you feel uncomfortable, that really isn't her problem. I I do understand that it might be extremely triggering for other women who have lost children during or shortly after childbirth. And for that, I can only offer enormous sympathy. But to the people saying it's inappropriate, who decides what is and isn't appropriate in this world? Who gets to police or govern a woman's emotional response? A columnist I really like called Barbara Ellen wrote this. Just as Tegan is responsible for her choices, so too are we all. Don't be critical when you see a bereaved mother flailing and struggling in the first stages of grief. Refrain from sniffy comments about posts being inappropriate and don't feign concern about her behaviour. That's the beauty of it. You only need to do nothing. Anybody with a problem with Tegan or anybody else posting in the aftermath of a personal tragedy need only look away or scroll past. Witnessing someone else's grief is never comfortable. And this idea that it should somehow be locked away because you don't know what to do with it. And if it's on social media rather than being presented right in front of you, literally do nothing, as Barbara Ellen says, scroll past. There are so many women for whom this photograph would have been so enormously helpful. Not that any woman should share their pain for the sole reason of helping others. She should be allowed to do something extinctive that feels right for her at that moment in her grief. But as an anonymous writer wrote for the American news station WBUR, which goes back to what you were saying earlier, Doll, while our society tries to create a false idea of a perfect path to motherhood... 
In how many other countries do mothers-to-be create a birth plan, as if childbirth is something to be micromanaged? The reality is often something entirely imperfect. Pregnancy loss is an incredibly common rite of passage for so many women along the way, and it's only one of a vast number of complications any doctor will tell you not to Google. There are so many things about pregnancy and motherhood that I have found enormously difficult. Nothing as terrible as this, I hasten to add, but that I am unable to share and it wouldn't be the right choice for me. But I am so enormously grateful to the women that can and do. I think it is of huge public good and um, grace, actually. It's heartbreaking to see any woman like Chrissy judged for it as Barbara writes do nothing scroll on do you think that should be the new keep calm and carry on do nothing scroll on do you know what I think I'm really sick of when it comes to female vulnerability online or or female storytelling in a personal or intimate capacity I've talked about this before but judgment masked as concern Mm, mm. I'm I'm worried about how it's going to be for her no you're not (laughs) you're it's like this is just another way of making female emotion seem like something that's out of control and embarrassing and uncontained and inappropriate that that's all that that concern usually is personally that's what I think in terms of because I had it leveraged at me as well and obviously for much much more trivial things but I just I don't believe in that sort of cultural concern on the most part I think it's just another way really of dismissing and judging women we she doesn't need our concern she needs our compassion but if she has decided with her partner to share this like extraordinarily you can't get any more traumatic moment of your life then we just have to like have trust in her instincts that this is something she really wants to do not just for her, but for the service of others. As you said, that takes grace. And if you don't like it, scroll on. I spoke at Cheltenham Literary Festival at the weekend and Dolly is going to be speaking next weekend. It is um, one of the major literary festivals in the UK and I always love um, going to the talks when I can, but it's obviously only something that you can normally see if you're already in Cheltenham. But... This year, for the first time ever, there is a Cheltenham Pass where you can stream all 120 of the talks for just 20 quid. And this is not hashtag spawn, by the way. I was desperate to watch some of the talks that I couldn't get to. And I was so pleased to hear about it. I just wanted to share. There's Malcolm Gladwell on his latest book, Talking to Strangers. Um, there is Alif Shafak and Dottie Charles on the Age of Outrage and so many more brilliant talks. And all the content is available on demand until the 31st of December 2020. So you just go to cheltenhamliteraturefestival.com forward slash box hyphen office. I've signed up and I'm going to be diving in over the coming weeks and I'll probably be waffling about my findings here because there are just so many brilliant talks to watch. I cannot wait. The lineup this year, particularly in the circumstances, I think is so impressive and so varied. I too will be signing up to watch that. Thanks for the tip, Panda. I'm afraid it's a dreaded bit of self-promotion. I promise this is not going to be like the Love Actually countdown, 
where it's six weeks to go, five weeks to go, four weeks to go. There is just over a week to go before my first novel, Ghosts, is published. And I wanted to let anyone know this week who likes audiobooks that the audiobook is being released early. It is available from this Thursday and it is read by the utterly dreamy Holiday Granger. So if you like audiobooks and you'd like to listen to my audiobook, then please buy it on Thursday. Thank you. Support for the Hilo comes from Stripe and Stare. Comfortable, sustainable knickers and loungewear for which, and not just because the sponsor ordered, Dolly and I have been long-term fans of. In fact, like most days, today I am wearing a pair. Not only are they the most comfortable knickers in the world, they are 95% biodegradable. Using sustainably sourced beechwood fibres, Stripe and Stairs production uses 95% less water than cotton and is proven to be up to three times softer. As well as this truly innovative approach, Stripe and Stair have also launched a subscription service for the Undie Obsessive. Sign up and get monthly knickers delivered through your letterbox so that you too can be like Justin Bieber. I think he uh, gets new underwear very regularly. (laughs) That is the celebrity rumour. Stripe and Stair also make loungewear and nightwear, all in the same super soft, sustainable fibres, perfect for working from home. I have a tie-dyed tracksuit, which can also masquerade as a pyjama because it's quite thin, which means technically I need, nor do, ever take it off. Get yourself a 20% discount by entering HIGH20, H-I-G-H-2-0, online at stripeandstare.com or shop the collection at international retailers such as Shopbop, Selfridges, Bloomingdale's and Revolve. Thank you very much to Stripe and Stare. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We have had an absolutely extraordinary amount of emails from teenage girls and some grown women about their love for Draco Malfoy. According to our sub-editor, Abby, we have never had so many emails on one subject in the Hilo's entire life. Who knew it would be this? Ategra Wagba said to me that she was perplexed that we thought this was surprising and that this has been going on for years and... He was her first massive crush. All the girls in her school were obsessed with him and we've really missed a trick. This passed me by when I was a kid. Do you remember it? No. No. I just don't remember it. But she was was like, this is not a thing. This has been happening for decades. So there we have it. Well, I mean, apparently so. We also love those of you who wrote in to say you had tried pop commands that week as a way of telling people to politely fuck off. For example, I can't discuss that right now, but could I pop over later? And that they had been very effective. So I am very pleased to hear this. Dolly probably less so. A couple of Canadians wrote in to stress that not only is Schitt's Creek written by a Canadian father and son, but it is also filmed 
with Canadian actors and set in Canada. And obviously, as a half Canadian person, <laughs> I am thrilled to hear this. And I have even more reason to watch Shit's Creek. Something that I've noticed my Canadian relatives is they are completely obsessed with insisting that everyone is Canadian. So I'll have to tell Barbara Alderton about this as well. Someone also wrote in with a very intriguing story about how they have verified Banksy's identity as a fellow Bristolian. And they can't tell us who it is, but they're definitely not Neil Buchanan from Art Attack. So there we go. I hope this story never ends on the high low. <laughs> we also had a really lovely letter from someone who wrote in to say that their boss had given them time off for heartbreak, following on from our discussion last week about how to mend a broken heart. I used to work for a company where it was stated in your contract that if you separate from your partner with whom you are married to or living with, you were allowed up to five days of leave. If any more than that was required, it was at a manager's discretion. During the time I worked there, I separated from my boyfriend and I was an emotional mess crying for days. I explained the situation to my boss at the time and he told me to take all the time I needed, which was five days in total. Upon my return, people were amazing and supportive. One colleague even invited me to use her office if I ever felt like I needed a moment. I welcome this kind of workplace culture and I think it can sometimes be missing in the corporate world. We are all human and as you said, it can be one of the worst things you can experience as an adult. I think more companies should recognise it as a hardship that comes with its own logistical, mental and physical struggles and taking time off to heal a broken heart should be normalised because after all, it's a normal thing to go through. I can see the cynics rolling their eyes about millennial snowflakes, but quite frankly, I think it's great. I was fired once for crying too much about a breakup at work. <laughs> oh, Pandy, how old were you? I was 23 and I was temping in a property firm. Oh. Tell me what you've been enjoying this week, Dolly. I have an absolute corker to recommend this week. I've been excited all week to share it. I reckon that's like a 19%. That's extinct. Yeah, I think we're going to do this now in conversation. I think I'll say a word and we'll just go 28 and I'll go 49. Yeah, yeah. yeah Corker, has got to be in there. Corker's, Corker's terminal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sock it to me. So my Corker, my Corker. Uh, I want to talk about Bruce Springsteen's lockdown radio show, From My Home to Yours, which he presents from his New Jersey farm. So it aired quite a while ago during deep lockdown on his American radio station. And then it got picked up over here by BBC Radio 2 during the summer. And you can listen to the episodes on BBC Sounds. I am so annoyed it's taken me this long to know about it. And I'm telling all of you about it with great urgency because it's doing that annoying BBC thing of expiring. So the first episode has expired. The second episode, which I urge you to all listen to, is absolutely beautiful, will expire quite shortly. He calls it a rock and roll requiem. And it's in memory of victims of COVID. There's lots of reflection on grief. Um, he reads the names of people who have lost their lives to COVID and shares details about their lives. I found it so moving, the music that he uses to commemorate those people. And to mark a, a period of mourning is just so sensibly done and beautiful 
that's probably the the heaviest one that I've listened to. The rest of the series is a mixture of just amazing song curation from him, proper mix of rock and roll, soul, Motown, gospel, hip hop and pop. I've discovered some great music through it. But there's this just perfect tone that he strikes that's so effortless and feels so much less mawkish than what Brits would dub as blitz spirit. He's just reverent and calm and yet furiously passionate. And he has this just natural, soulful, blue-collar statesman quality. And he gets the tone so right. And he's also just really charming and funny. He shares a lot of personal stories. He gets very nostalgic with guests who are fellow musician friends, including an episode with his wife, which I adored. He pays homage to musicians and musical moments of history. And it's all delivered in this beautiful, familiar, weathered, trusted, safe voice that Bruce Springsteen has. And it has confirmed to me which what I've always known really, which is Bruce Springsteen is the closest thing I've ever seen to my absolute dream man. I don't think you can get anything as close to male perfection than Springsteen. That's my number one take home. <laughs> is he even more of your dream man than Rod Stewart? Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's got the whole package. I've gotten deep into a Springsteen autobiographical hole this week and it is a hole that I very much enjoyed nestling in. What are the Springsteen fans called? Steeners? Steenies? Springies? No, st- I don't know. Brucies? <laughs> I don't know. He's called the boss so maybe we're called the employees? Not very The sexy. bosses. I don't know. I've made that up. Um, anyway, can't recommend it enough. I think it's my favourite new piece of culture that I've been introduced to in 2020. I found it really soothing and uplifting. I've cried, I've laughed and I've danced listening to every episode. I'm going to play a clip from the episode with his wife, Perry, who captures just such a lockdown, married for 30 years vibe, very my parents, (laughs) of being very much in love, but also very ready to have a conversation with someone else other than her husband. <laughs> it's absolutely gorgeous. And those city songs of yours remind me, of course, who, of who you were when we first met. <laughs> you were a stone-cold city girl, 19 years living in the city. <laughs> I loved New York City. I had a massive love affair with the city. I used to uh, steal up there and sit on the park bench waiting mm-hmm. for my gal to meet me with the six-pack of beer. This is true. So, uh, we got engaged on the park bench. Yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got a quiz for you. Okay. Com- coming up next. All right. Here's a hint. Old Asbury Lanes. Here's another hint. Rockabilly. Oh, yeah. Here's your third hint. The female Elvis. <laughs> I know you got that. Fujiyama Mama Vonda Jackson. <laughs> Just rough joy and liberation. Here it comes. <laughs> While that clip was playing, I told Dolly that Bruce Springsteen reminded me of Michael Barrymore and she got really cross with me. Um, she actually flounced out briefly, but CJ lured her back. Um, you just do it every time. It's so <laughs> bum out. It's like when I first told you I had a crush on Keir Starmer and you said he looked like the Havit Earth man from <laughs> Bridget Jones's diary. <laughs> Julian from the Shopping Channel. <laughs> it does. It's true. It's true. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just sometimes think that I need to puncture these sexual fantasies before they take you over, take over you, take you over. That's true. There's little else I've been thinking about this week, actually. So maybe you've done me a favour to clear out a bit of brain space. Can we talk about the social dilemma? Yeah, watched that a couple of weeks ago. It it gave me the willies. <laughs> so the social dilemma for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, you've probably heard about it because I have had endless conversations with friends because I was really debating about whether or not to watch it. I didn't know if I was in the right frame of mind. And actually, I had exactly the same thing, Panda. Farley told our WhatsApp group of girls to watch it. And initially I was like, no, I'm too jittery at the moment, like a skittish little rabbit, don't want to. And then I got lured in, and I'm so glad I did, but it did give me the willies. It is really fascinating. It's a docudrama about the impact of social media on our lives, featuring Silicon Valley's most famous detractors. It did have an incredible roster of talking heads, the main one being Tristan Harris, a formal Google design ethicist which means he looks at kind of the ethics of design, the the morality of it. And Shoshana Zuboff, the author of Surveillance Capitalism and the founding father of virtual reality, a funky title if I ever had one, Jerron Lanier. I'm obsessed with that guy. I thought he was the best voice on it. And for years, I've had a friend tell me that I've got to read his book, which is 10 Reasons to Leave Social Media Right Now. You've read it, haven't you? I haven't read it and I don't know why because that's exactly the kind of thing that I enjoy reading Mm. and he, I agree, he is fascinating and he also was, I think, the much needed voice of nuance because Mm. it's not unusual, like there's kind of a bit of a running joke, isn't there, that these Silicon Valley guys went into Pinterest or Facebook or Slack, started it up, or like invented the Gmail folder or inbox, made a shit ton of money and then got out and told everyone not to use these tools anymore. I'm I'm kind of semi-cynical. I think, of course, they are in a position to critique what they created because they, they know firsthand the kind of psychological impact of these tools. I don't think that that means that they can't be trusted or that they are motivated entirely by... Self-interest. And they're basically, they're not necessarily talking about the dangers of social media full stop. They're talking about the dangers of complacency and losing our choice and our autonomy. And they stress that there is a need to be aware. The, The primary motivation, I think, of this documentary is the need to be aware of who is the product when you are using social Mm. media and also, quote unquote, how we move from the information age to the disinformation age. And I know that sounds quite awkward, but they do phrase it disinformation, not misinformation. And I think the I found the hardest bits to watch when um, we saw clips of how this had fueled white supremacy, um, amongst other things. And they talk about it as these are the tools that are eroding the fabric of how society works. But I want to know what you think. Gave me the willies. Right. OK, so to be more specific, I tell you what gave me the willies. <laughs> I <laughs> I think that's the 38%, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Also, I've been saying it wrong for years because for, <laughs> for years I said it put the willies up me. Different thing. I think I got confused between put the wind up you and give you the willies. Anyway, give me the willies. Uh, I'll tell you why. Um, the first <laughs> reason 
the first reason, and it's quite hackneyed now to dwell on this, but there's that moment where they say to all of these people who developed these features and these apps and these tools where we spend a huge majority, most of us spend a huge majority of our time and our energy and our focus now, all of them said they don't allow their children to use them. And this is a very clumsy metaphor, but I remember there was a kebab shop on (laughs) Chalk Farm Road (laughs) that I used to frequent a lot in my younger years uh, on a Friday and Saturday night about 3am. And I remember every time there was this man who owned the kebab shop and I would see him, he was always at the front slicing the donner and the look on his face was that of complete repulsion. And oh, I can see where you're going with always, this. Yeah, and it's the same. It's the same thing here about um, you never meet a drug dealer who takes their own drugs. Yeah, that you, it's it's you would never ever meet a drug dealer who took their own stuff. And I think there's something that just felt so simple but so profound for me that the men who understood how and why these tools were developed what the effect psychologically is on people and why we keep coming back to them means that they're one of the most dangerous things to shield from their children I just think that says everything you need to know doesn't it well I don't listen to the hilo (laughs) the hilo is our donna kebab (laughs) yeah we know what goes we know what goes in yeah, that cylinder of grey meat, and we don't want anything to do with it. You guys can stuff yourself, silly. Not not on our watch. Absolutely. I watched this the day after I had been on this, uh, been part of this talk at Cheltenham Literary Festival, and it was so interesting to watch it the day after because a lot of the talk was about social media. So the host. Abigail Bergstrong asked us, what would we change about social media? And Otegra Wagba said very clearly, and she had admitted that she spends far too much time on social media and that it um, doesn't have a positive effect on her. It makes her very angry. She doesn't like the person who she is on it. And, you know, she finds it a real time drain. And and she said, without missing a beat, I would um, erase it completely. And Really? I said... You can't erase it completely because if we you're going backwards if you erase it completely. What I would do is remove all the sexy features that make it so addictive and I think make it so anxiety making. So I wouldn't. Yeah, and, I, they, and they really hone in on this program on like what what the very specific features are that make it most dangerous. And as you said, it's not it's not so much as as a concept of connection that is dangerous. It's these it, it's the features that and the tools that make it addictive and that's the thing that ruins our brains. Exactly. So I wouldn't take it away completely because I think it's a really vital tool for sharing and spreading ideas. I think it's there's an amazing sense of solidarity. I think it's been vital in the pollination of global social movements. I think there's a lot of positive things. I what I don't like and this is something I said on the talk is when we talk about social media like it's a net good or a net bad 
It's just you don't you can't talk about anything like that because there is almost nothing in this world that is wholly good or wholly bad. But what I would do is I would take away the ability to see people's follow count. I would take away likes. I'd keep direct messaging so that conversation doesn't always have and arguments don't always have to be in front of a million people. And then I take away stuff on WhatsApp like last scene. I take away the ellipses of instant messaging. I would probably take away the retweet button or you can retweet, but you can't comment. Anyway, I won't I won't yeah. take you down my rabbit hole of if I was the mayor no, of social no, media I, town, I think, what would I do? I think that's I think that's really, really interesting. And actually, the thing that because, you know, you watch these things or you read these things, certain uh, certain ideas or certain sentences remain in your head. But really, what is the residual effect on your behavior? The thing it did for me is speaking of those tools, they talked about how psychologically every time you pull down on your Instagram feed to check if there have been new posts or every time that you refresh Twitter, it has the same effect on the brain as putting a coin in the slot machine in a gambling arcade. So it's engaging with addiction, which we know, obviously, but when you break it down into those terms, I found it really helpful. And the first thing I did was I took off all the notifications from my WhatsApp for the first time in my life. So every time I look at my screen, unless I have an email, I now have nothing. No one texts me. I only have WhatsApp messages. But I was basically constantly looking at my phone like I was pulling the lever on the fruit machine. And now I have to go, I have to go find the messages. And I think just like being aware of how this psychology manipulates us, I found quite helpful. The slot machine psychology is all about dopamine and how if you know that you are guaranteed a reward you are less involved and engaged than if you don't know when it's coming. So it's like when you're playing roulette or, you know, the like claw going into the soft toys. Is it going to grab one or is it not? And a lot of that knowledge about psychology comes from the rat and the lever experiment, which was in the 1930s by a psychologist called Burhouse Skinner. And basically they figured out that a rat, if it, always knew it was going to get a treat when it pulled on a lever it just got bored whereas when it didn't know when it was getting the treat it was obsessed with pulling the lever Mm. because it keeps it just keeps you on your toes doesn't you it's like a game but playing a game with your communication obviously makes the whole thing a lot more fraught facebook unsurprisingly have called the documentary sensationalist it says that these are difficult and complex societal problems i don't think the documentary shies away from how complex these problems are no i don't think it's fatalistic either it ends with Jerome talking about how we move forward with this thing still in our lives but in a safer way and actually one of the main voices of the program is a man whose sole purpose in life is looking at the ethics of social media and how we can have it in our lives in a way that's safe, healthy, ethical, humane. I don't think there was any sort of absolutism about the fact that this has to be demolished. I have to say, I changed my stance a little bit after watching this. I've always been keen to stress that there have always been developments in our communication that throw society off and that cognitively and psychologically we are always slightly behind when it comes to adapting to communication. So the creation of the telegram massively threw people off. The television freaked everyone out. 
the telephone, the mobile phone, all of them required huge societal shifts, which left a lot of people baffled or uncomfortable or sceptical. There were always huge swathes of people that were completely against these mediums, thought that they could bring nothing but harm. My favourite concern around the television, and this was a huge concern, is that quite a lot of people worried that it would prevent housewives from getting all of their work done during the day. How, how could they do all their housework with the temptation of the television? Right there. And so that is the very nature of technological changes and shifts in communication. You know, they challenge the very essence of how we relate to other humans and we need to catch up. However, then I watched this documentary and it explained that the rate of acceleration of communication in technology is so much faster than it's ever been. And we can never possibly begin to catch up. I had a moment of awareness there and I was like, oh, Another truly horrifying part that I can't stop thinking about and that really makes me think um, about how we think and how this impacts Gen Z and how we teach social media education in schools, which is just absolutely not being done enough and not being prioritised by the government enough, I don't think, is how the documentary shared how suicide stats in young girls has gone up since 2010, which is when social media became available on phones. So our sub-editor, Abby, cannot verify these facts, but these are the facts that are given in the documentary or the docudrama, and I believe they are US-based. But since 2010, suicide has gone up in the States in the age 15 to 19 bracket by 70%, and in the 10 to 15-year-old bracket by 151%. And that is a dramatically steeper incline than in any of the decades previous. Yeah, it is so chilling. I couldn't believe those statistics. Really frightening. Doll, you've said you turned off your notifications. Has it changed anything else about the way you use social media? Here's what I think now about me and social media. I feel like I've, for about three years... I've felt weird about social media. For me, personally, I know lots of people who have very healthy relationships with social media. I have known for, yeah, a few years that it is very damaging to my mental health, detrimental to my sleep, most importantly, most detrimental to my sense of self and to my sense of creativity and voice and instinct it makes me feel untethered and unmoored on bad days and I think I'm an addict and there is only one answer which is it's not that I need to be off it completely I need to be on it in a very minimal boundary marshalled way in the last six months to a year I have completely found a system that makes me safer it's incredibly regimented and that's the answer that that's it's so simple I just for me personally that's the only way that I can move forward and be happy and healthy and for most of my life and sense of self to exist in flesh and blood in air and earth in reality here And yet, I have a book coming out next week, as we know, October 15th. 
And I've had to be on social media more for that. I say had to. I think basically the addict in me saw a nice excuse that I that I get to. And the effects on sleep, generalised anxiety has been almost instant. <laughs> almost instant. I'm, I, I can't believe now that I'm on social media basically every day, how much more difficult I find the day to day. So that's a very long winded way of saying for me personally, and it's very important to state this, it's very different for everyone's personal life, work, psychology. For me personally, I know it's detrimental. And I think I'm going to be making my peace with that and working out the boundaries of that for the next however long. What about you? I had exactly the same thing when my book came out and I was on it every day for two weeks. And I was able to, because I'm used to only checking, you know, once a week or once every two weeks, I was able to really notice the difference. Mm -hmm. And as you say, just very personally, I have a much better relationship with it and and with anything, to be honest, except for reading, when it is controlled and intermittent. So in the same way that I might do an exercise class once a week, or I might speak to my mother once a week, or I might have a bath once a week, joking. I have I wash every day. <laughs> I just knew it was just it was just great. If I if I approached it in a really targeted way, I'd keep a to-do list of people I needed to message and things I wanted to post, and then I go on, I do my business, I wipe my bum, and I log out. Works for us. But again, let's say it again, that doesn't work for everyone. This is the thing that's key, I think. I think people feel like when I say this stuff that I'm making a judgment on how they use social media. I wish I could use it, you know, in a kind of carefree, thoughtless way and be on it five times a day and it not bother me. It's just that's not how I work. That's not how you work. No, I'm not very good with lots of buzzy voices in my head, which is what social media was. But I do know what you mean. People do say it as a judgment. I started putting boundaries in about two years ago and I had I definitely had people a bit baffled because obviously there was a lot I missed because people just put everything on Instagram now which drives me mad rather than you know texting their news um and also a lot of people thought there was a smugness there and I don't think I realized how loaded the conversation is around social media boundaries I used to use it as kind of almost like the running background music to my life so I would share what I was doing so if you wanted to know what I was up to, you could see it through my social media. And then, I don't know, I got older, I had kids, my brain changed, and I just realised I didn't, yeah, I didn't want to share the same way. I didn't want to be present in the same way. I wanted to be, it was affecting my ability to, pres- to be present in my real life. And I think when that happens, you want to maybe look at it. But only if that happens, as you say. If it doesn't, great. Doll, what else have you been enjoying this week? I'm going to do a quick fire of a few things that I've enjoyed this week. The first is Once Were Brothers, which is a beautiful documentary about the band with amazing talking heads, including the sexy boss, Bruce Springsteen, and (laughs) Eric Clapton, and Robbie Robertson is the main talking head for it, who was a member of the band. It's about the brotherhood and politics within the band, It's about the band's relationship with Bob Dylan. I know this is incredibly specific for a lot of people. The reason I bring it up is I was raving about it on my Instagram stories and I've since had lots of messages from people asking where I watched it. So if you're a fan of the band or you're a fan of that period of music history or you're interested in what was going on in Woodstock in the late 60s, once we're brothers, you can rent it on Amazon Prime Video. I also 
highly recommend listening to Robbie Williams on Adam Buxton. I always was and always will be a massive Robbie Williams fan, the man and the music. He is very funny and sweet and charming and very vulnerable on this episode because he obviously is so desperate to impress Adam Buxton, who has to admit to him that he was quite sneery about him in the 90s when Adam Buxton was on TV and Robbie Williams was at the height of his fame. And it's just a really open, vulnerable conversation, mainly from Robbie's side. And it's so clear that he's so keen to impress on Adam that he's a thoughtful, culturally engaged person. And yeah, it's just kind of heartbreaking and sad to listen to that dynamic of this man who has had like such enormous mainstream commercial success. Obviously still desperately wanting to be seen as kind of fringy and... It's an interesting dynamic to listen to. And it's amazing that a man with that much power and success can obviously still be really concerned about what a funny bloke who loves alternative comedy and walks through a field with his dog Rosie talking into a microphone thinks of him. Like that's the man he really, really wants the approval of. And yeah, it was a lovely conversation. I really enjoyed that. And I also loved The Duchess by Catherine Ryan, which I know you mentioned, Panda, and you too enjoyed. I found it very macabre and very arch and it's very silly as well and I think maybe it's silliness acts as a Trojan horse because really there are some very interesting thoughts that underpin that series about motherhood and womanhood and femininity and I really enjoyed it you can watch that on Netflix six episodes very watchable how much did you enjoy her outfits at the school gates Oh, loved them. I love that whole thing. It's it's like quite an old-fashioned idea of the female comedian. It's very Joan Rivers, bold dressing, caustic tongue, highly powerful, sexy. It's of a different time, but I really enjoyed how she modernised that sort of female comic voice. Thank you very much for that quick fire. Used to do lots of quick fires. Can you bring them back actually? Because I make notes to listen to podcasts because whenever I'm out and about, I never know what to listen to. So can you do a few can you bring that back, please? Yes, I will. Thank you very much. I watched one of the best pieces of British filmmaking that I have seen in a long time. It's called Rocks. Have you heard about this? No. Oh my God, I had been dying to see it at the cinema and I couldn't make it. And I'm so glad it came to Netflix straight from the cinema, which is no doubt accelerated by the pandemic because I know that the period of time between cinema and general release has got shorter, but this was um, pretty much instant, I think. And Rox is about a 15-year-old black girl called Olashola, nicknamed Rox, played by Bucky Bakray, living in East London, whose mother, suffering from depression, abandons her and her eight-year-old younger brother, Emmanuel, leaving Rox to look after her little brother on her own and to try and outsmart the social workers who have been, who have been alerted to the fact that Rox's mother has left the family. The main narrative is obviously extremely sad. The vulnerability of these two children and rocks, even as she tries to put on a front of of not needing anybody, is after all only 15 years old. But it is also an extremely funny and energetic and deeply moving look 
at the friendship of girlhood and the strength of those bonds and the shared communities of London, particularly where Rox lives in East London. The relationship between Rox and her best friend, Samaya, played by Kosar Ali, is so finely drawn. There is a lightness to the depth of their friendship and real nuance given to their differences. At one point, Rox and Emmanuel shuffle embarrassedly into Samaya's house in need of somewhere to stay, while there is a big Somalian wedding celebration going on, which Rox and Emmanuel feel completely kind of bemused by and don't really know where to find their place. At another point, Rox tells someone that she doesn't like Jamaican food. It's an incredibly subtle way of reminding the viewers, many of whom will likely be white, that the black and brown community, despite frequently being written about in the media as such, is far from homogenous. And there's another bit that feels necessarily pertinent to a lot of the conversations we're having at the moment where a white middle-class girl, played by Ruby Stokes, tries to help Rox. You know, she acts only from... A place of goodwill, but she ends up making it worse, misunderstanding what Rox really needs in that moment. The film is written by up-and-coming Nigerian-British playwright and screenwriter Teresa Ikoko with film and TV writer Claire Wilson, and it's directed by Sarah Gavron, who made 2007's Brick Lane and 2015's Suffragette. And they underwent the most amazing process of collaboration to make it. Doll, you know a lot more about filmmaking than me, but I'd be interested to know if you thought that this was a rare kind of process of research and collaboration that went into the project before it even got off the ground. So the casting director, Lucy Pardy, met with over 1,000 girls over a period of years at various London schools before choosing 30 girls with whom they ran workshops for nearly a year, where the teenagers would openly discuss their romances, their thoughts about social media, their feelings about school. The kids would do writing exercises, they would listen to music, they'd dance, they'd speak about dialogue or what felt authentic to them, how they felt about plot. From there, after a year, the girls were whittled down to 12 and then seven were selected, who were the teenagers who play this very tight friend group in the film. That is a very rigorous and thoughtful casting process. Just everything about how they put this film together. I mean, it's a wonder to watch, but reading about it makes it even more um, thoughtful and impactful when you read about every detail of how they made the film being so intentional. For example, the crew was deliberately 75% female as Sarah Gavron wanted the cast, the teenage cast, to see a successful female crew, to see women that they might aspire to be. Isn't that lovely? Mm. Yeah, and it shows you can do, do this differently. And it's just a total homage to the resilience of rocks and the power of teenage girlhood and female friendship and I, I cannot recommend this enough Dolly I think it will take your breath away and that's on Netflix now <laughs> 
thank you for listening to the high low you can write to us by emailing the high show at gmail.com you can tweet us at the high show you can buy our merch at the where all proceeds go to charity 50 percent to freedom charity and 50 percent to black minds matter we'll talk to you next week bye 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 Just dance.